let us rest in you. Let us experience you. Um, Lord, as we just kind of lay out before you the, the hurts that we have, the disappointments that we may have, the celebrations that we have, the joyous moments that we have, Lord, we know we can run to you and we can find grace every single time. So Lord, we rest in that. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We honor you. We glorify you. We want you shape us today. We ask all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Yen's kids, y'all stay, okay, for just a minute. So it's awesome as a church that one of the greatest things that we get to do is care for the least of these. And so today we get a chance to dedicate one of a just special person in the life of our church um, through DJ and Brittany Jellison. We get to dedicate Felicity. And so let me read this passage of scripture for you. It comes out of Psalm 139, 13 through 16. It says, Oh yes, you shaped me first inside and then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, oh high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. Oh, what a creation. You know me inside and you know me outside. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd ever lived one single day. So awesome in this passage, we get a chance to rest in the goodness and glory of God. Now, we were on his mind even before conception. We're always on God's mind. We're crafted in his image. Therefore, we're fullest at our full capacity when we reflect him. Now, as a body of Christ, we're gathered here as people that have confessed Christ as Lord. That's the church. That's the body. That's what we do. But with this confession, we not only receive salvation and move into the sanctification journey where we become looking more and more like Christ as he shapes us and molds us and rubs off our rough edges, but we also accept this commissioning to go and make disciples. Now, the thing that we have to understand is it's so easy to defer that responsibility to somebody else, but... We're to do it here as a church, and most importantly, parents are to do it for their children. They're the ones that are to take on the chief responsibility for discipleship in their homes. And so that's what we're here today to do, is to begin that process, to dedicate Felicity and have Brittany and DJ make a commitment to raise Felicity in a way that is honoring to God They're going to speak some truths over Felicity. And then we as a congregation are going to make a statement of commitment to carry out our responsibility in the discipleship process. And so let's get it started. So I want to introduce to you two people that are incredibly important to me and our church, I think, 
uh, DJ and Brittany Jellison. So if they would come on down. If you love them, share with that that you love them. How about that? And then Miss Felicity right here, which so many of us love so deeply. So before us, we have Brittany and, and DJ, brothers and sisters in Christ, who acknowledge this, Psalm 127. Don't you see that children are God's best gift, the fruit of the womb and his generous legacy? Like a warrior's fistful of arrows are the children of a vigorous youth. Oh, how blessed are you parents with your quivers full of children. And Felicity is full of life. Amen and amen. So, DJ, before your church family, is it your desire to dedicate Felicity to the Lord, committing to become Felicity's chief disciple, or guiding to learn and live the ways of Jesus? Absolutely. And she's excited about that too. All right, so you've indicated your desire to do this. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a minute where we're going to speak some truths over Felicity. So Brittany and DJ are do that. They're going to be up on the screen. Church family, rest in these truths because these truths speak to us just as much as they speak to Felicity. So here we go. Jesus suffered death on the cross, crying out at the end, it is finished. <laughs> For you, Felicity, all this was done so that while you, while, while you belong to us here on earth, you may know your heavenly Father for eternity. And Felicity, for you, we commit to continue to tell you this good news. <laughs> and Felicity, we love you, girl. We know. We know. So witnessing these parents uh, taking this step uh, to commit to disciple their child places this unique responsibility on us as a church. So as a church, we've committed ourselves to learn and live the ways of Jesus. And we want to follow Jesus' example as we commit to invest in each other. So with this said, part of our investment as a church and is to the children within the congregation and, of course, to their parents. So... We want to stand to them. We want to this is real that we mean what we say. So would join with me. There's a statement that's going to come up on the screen, and we want to proclaim this to this family as we commit to encourage them. So here we go. We, as your church family, commit to invest in you as your parents and as, as your child as you strive to learn and live the ways of Jesus. Amen. Stay standing. We're going to pray. I've asked some people to come and lay hands on DJ and Brittany um, as we pray for them and as they move forward. So if you would come now. So let's join in prayer over the family as they commit to disciple their children in learning and living the ways of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift up DJ, we lift up Brittany, and we lift up Felicity. Lord, we pray for Felicity's discipleship journey. Um, Lord, we pray that it will be rich and glorious, that it will be pointed to you. Lord, I pray for DJ. You'll strengthen him and as he leads his family. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen Brittany. And she is just a phenomenal mother. Um, Lord, I pray that you would thwart off 
um, the schemes of Satan that will say so many things to them that are lies. And Lord, I pray as a church family that we will speak truth to them constantly. We'll speak truth in Yen's kids over Felicity when we have her. Lord, in his discipleship and connect groups and in other, other ways, we will speak truth to the family as they go through the uphill climb of discipleship. Um, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this commitment. Thank you that we as a body get to bond together, lock arms, and do this together. We are not in this alone. Lord, we praise you for that. Um, we ask all this in your name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. I love when we get to do those kind of things. It's one of my favorite things to do is, as a pastor and as a church, commit to each other to stand with each other. So we are continuing in our I Am series. Uh, we are in John 10 now. So John 10, as we even started with last week, stems off of what took place in John 9 with the man who was born blind. So this man was born blind, and Jesus willingly took some liberty to stretch the rules of this, this cultural religion that was going on at the time um, in the immediate context, and he, he healed this man. This man was born blind, and now he can see. So rather than stepping back to see the entire context of the event, especially the fact that what Jesus had just done with this man was actually this like messianic fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, what took place at that specific moment was actually where the religious leaders of the time chose dominance and excommunicated this man, kicked him out of the fellowship. You're blind, now you can see. Thank you for playing. You're out of the fold. You're out. This process actually removed this man from any rights that he may have had, effectively making him an outsider. So that's where we were in John 10. And then we move in the, I'm sorry, in John 9, and then we move into John 10, and we kind of have to get this like image of what's going on. There's a good chance that, that you could kind of put in the frame of your mind, there's these, there's these specific religious leaders that, are, that want to hold so tightly to the ways that things have always been done. So much so that they're willing to put someone out for it. And here you have Jesus and you have this gathering crowd behind this man. And Jesus kind of steps in between the man and the religious leaders in the crowd he positions himself there, and then he says this statement in John 10 that we unpacked last week. He says, I am the door. I am the door. And to us, of course, we kind of went through that last week, but just initially that just means so little to us because we have no idea about the shepherding analogy that he's building. Where he's saying, hey, I am the, there's a sheepfold protection and security and provision and safety and everything that you'll ever need 
There's one out there because there were sheepfolds all over the countryside and I am the door to that. I am the door to your provision and your protection and your security and all that your heart longs for. That sheepfolds my kingdom. I am the one that all the Old Testament points to. I am the one that's gonna give you the life that you're looking for in your kingdom. I'm the only door for the only kingdom that matters. And guess what? There's this incredible promise of life to come because he closes out the passage that we looked at last week, the first part, right in the John 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and life abundantly. Life that's beyond measure. Life that's gonna blow your mind. Life that's more than anything you could ever comprehend. Now, but he doesn't just stop there. So in the midst of this, all that's going on, as he's standing between the religious leaders and the people and the man who was, was born blind who can now see, he makes this claim. He is not only the one that does the justifying work to allow you into the kingdom. He's not just the door into the sheepfold. But he's also the one doing the work that we call sanctification, where we become who we already are in Christ. But that's his responsibility too. And so he actually begins to shift this analogy from being the door to now, when we see in just a minute, he's gonna make this statement that he is the good shepherd. Because in the passage that we read, he said, my sheep will come in and they will go out because I have this incredible promise for them. I'm doing the work. I built the kingdom. I am the door. You don't have to be the door. And now, I am the good shepherd. So what Jesus is essentially doing is he's taken us, earn it at all cost worker bees. You know who you are who has to earn everything. High capacity people, whatever it may be, and he's put us on notice. But he also put us wonderlusters, those that are always looking for the greener grass somewhere else, he's putting on us notice as well. To say, hey, I've got this, but let's see how. So if you would, stand with me. We're Read the passage in John 10. It's John 10, verse 11. We're going to read through, I think, verse 14. I've got to look at my notes to remind us. 15, sorry. So here it goes. Well, before we say that, I want to make sure that you stand because we stand on the rock of the word. That's why we stand. We position ourselves to show that this is what matters. So let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. For this is the word of the Lord. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is the hired hand and not a shepherd, who is, and he who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming. And he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. He is not concerned about the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own 
sheep, and my own sheep know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So if we were to like have the same full background that many of these people that were surrounding Jesus at this time had, remember, go back to the picture in your mind, you have religious leaders that are just very well versed in the scripture. So much so they said that a, a very devout Jewish leader at that time, you could stab a sword through a rolled scroll and they probably could every single word that it pierced. That's how much they knew God's word. Then you also have just maybe some common folk behind you. You've got the man who was born blind, who probably wasn't all that greatly educated. And so here you have all these different kinds of people, but they're all following similar religious structure at this time. Now, as Jesus saying these words, actually starting back into verse 10, he uses this language that actually for us is kind of easy for us to shift to the side. But for them, there would be these warning bells going off, these like red flags that would be happening. Because what he's doing is actually weaving together these statements that are actually pointing back to several points in Scripture in the Old Testament. Numbers 27, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 17. You could go back and look at these and you would read them and you'd be like, oh my gosh, what is Jesus really saying? These are beautiful He's pointing to God's covenant, his covenant relationship with his people as, guess what, the shepherd, the shepherd that cares for his flock. And so Jesus says right here, I am that guy. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Now, I want to be very transparent with you and very honest with you. This statement scares me to death as your pastor. Scares me to death. Let me give you an analogy on why. So I was a psychology major in college, all right? And one day in my psychology class, we walked in, and my professor said, hey, I want you to draw a house. And I was like, sweet, I can draw a house. Like that might have been one of the only assignments I actually did really well on. Um, considering this is probably what my drawing looked like, um, something similar to that. All right, and I was like, okay, cool, I can draw a house. And I was like, sweet, class over now? And he was like, no, class is not over now. And then he, what he went on to begin to talk about is what we had actually participated in is this thing called the draw personality test. And so this test uses an individual's drawing to delve into their subconscious and offer insights into their personality their emotions, and their cognitive patterns. And so actually by decoding these visual cues on my house picture, he began to like unlock hidden aspects in my personality or in my thoughts or in my past experiences that are not just easily unearthed in just a typical conversation. And so he did this and it was like, oh man, I thought I was just drawing a house. Like I finally did something right. So I didn't get a grade on that house, by the way, sadly. But, you know, it sounds weird, but sometimes when 
I think when we say the good shepherd, we can throw that out there like, oh, Jesus is the good just follow him. And not realize that there's a lot of like undercurrent that goes on in that. Because when we take the word shepherd and we equate it to leader, you know, some of you have had incredible experiences with leadership in your life. Some of you have not. And so when you hear, I am the good leader, some of you are like, yes, yes, I I know somebody like that. And some of you are like, oh, not again. And then you take the next step to that. In a lot of ways in Scripture, shepherd equates pastor. And some of you have had incredible experiences in church with a pastor who loved you and cared for you and wanted the best for you and prayed for you and walked with you and guided you. Sadly, some of you have not had that experience. And you've been hurt. And you've been let down. And in some ways, I'm carefully using this word, you may have even endured some abuse. This passage scares me. Scares Zach too. Because so often, we use the undercurrent of a reality and we build upon that. And if that initial building place, that initial foundation isn't what it should be, it makes it hard. So what I want to do today is we're actually going to go through, and I want to be very clear with you who the good shepherd is and what he does. Because I want you to be able to weigh that against the experiences that you've had in the past. So that way you can look forward and you can see the goodness that comes from the good shepherd when he says, I am the good shepherd and builds upon I am the door. That means if you're on the inside, you're accepted. If you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then he looks to you and says, you are accepted. Just like I squeeze my girl's cheeks and I love you and try to convince him of that. You're on the inside. And then he says, listen, follow me. I'm not that person. I am Jesus. So let's look and see who the good shepherd is. We need to know who he is because once we know who he is, there's this beautiful thing that begins to develop. And so if you would, turn to your Bibles to Psalm 23. It's an incredible portrait of the good shepherd. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. We'll relate back some to John 10, and you're going to hear some of the language from John 10 and some of the truth from John 10 embedded in who the good shepherd is and what the good shepherd does. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read it all, Psalm 23, because it's, it's six verses. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear 
no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy or loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So it starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Here's this like firm and undeniable truth. This is not something that we can wiggle out of. This is not something we can explain away. This is not something that based on our previous experiences, whether good or bad, that we can like make our own. This is a definitive truth. The Lord, Jesus, Yahweh is our shepherd. He's not a hired hand, as it said in John 10. John made, made it very clear of what Jesus was saying there. Because when we go back to like first century farming, a shepherd is everything to his flock. A shepherd is a guide, a shepherd is a protector, a, a shepherd is a physician, he's a provider. All right, so if we think about it, Kinder, one of the commentaries I actually read, he says, the thief tries to steal the sheep secretly. The robber wants to exploit the sheep violently. And the hired hand just runs away fearfully when the predator comes. But the true shepherd, the good shepherd, cares for the flock lovingly and courageously. And what did Jesus say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. I am willing to lay down my life for the flock. I am the one that's willing to put it all on the line for my sheep. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, and realize we're all following something, so who are we allowing to be our shepherd? Who are we inviting in to be the one that we follow most closely? Is it a thing? Is it an idea? Is it a person? Some, some cultural phenomena? What is it? If you had to fill in the blank, the blank is my shepherd, what would you put there? Because we're all following something. Who is it? What is it? Is it a career path? Is it a financial plan? Is it a relationship? What is it? Because then he goes in, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, if we look at this a certain way, we think like, oh man, if I want something, then I'm bad. I shouldn't even want anything. And I think if we, we kind of take the translation and kind of move it into like a 21st century understanding of it, this is actually, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I long for nothing else but the shepherd. You know, we have this, this embedded search for significance and safety. It's innate in us. It's sacred. We want to be something. We want to build upon something. You know, Jesus himself, when he was born, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid into a manger, and he too looked up for the warm connection of his mother Mary. He longed for that. Just like many of you do, just like we all do. 
thing is, here we lack nothing. If the Lord is our shepherd, we should not want, we, we, we will lack nothing. Because one of the cool things is, is the shepherd knows his sheep by name. So he knows us by name. He knows us particularly special. He knows the insides of us, and we're going to kind of follow this thread a little bit. But he, a good shepherd named his sheep. And the good shepherd would call that sheep. And so here we lack nothing. That sheep knows the shepherd loves him. And so when he's lacking something, where is that sheep looking to but is looking to the shepherd? So the question we have to ask ourselves is where do we go when something is missing? Where do we go when something is missing? Where do we go when we're short on something or we're longing for something? All right, so this is just the start. So these are the characteristics for your head and your heart. So this is where what we're about to move into is kind of the litmus test, okay? That we've experienced in the past, we, we compare them to the plumb line of what we're about to hear. For those of you that experienced hurt in the past, this is where we get a chance to like put that aside for just a little bit to realize that there's a different way to go about this. And so as we move into verse two, in Psalm 23, we just begin to see these beautiful things come out. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he do? But he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, if you think about that, in our American understanding of things, I think of that as like somebody who does like the old like wrestling move or something where you kind of put your leg out and you like slam somebody down and you make them lay down and you give them the elbow drop or something like that. All right? Or it's like the, the dog that you need to lay down because you got to give it a, a shot or something or a pill and you're like pressing it down to the ground and the dog doesn't want to go. And you're like, I'm not a dog, man. I don't want to be laid down, okay? So we think of that and we actually are like, okay, hold on. That's not what it means, all right? What it actually is saying here is he settled me down. Because the first beautiful thing that the good shepherd does is he settles us me down. This is where we have to understand with the door, if we're inside, if we're accepted, we have security, we have safety. If we're not accepted, if we don't have security, if we don't have safety, what can we not do? We can't settle. This is where we rest in the first truth that we saw last week, and we move into this. He settles me down. We're safe. We're secure. We're good enough to lie down. Now, for those of you like earn it workaholics, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to do the work to settle down. Check off the boxes to settle down. You don't have to be the one that, that, that gets everything in line first and then you get to settle down. The settling is done for you. Just the truth of who he is settles you. But for those of you that the grass is always greener on the other side, we get to ask the question now, well, where is he settling me down? Because of the grass over there looks pretty good, and the grass over there looks pretty good, and I could go do this, and I could go do that, and I could go rest in that. I'd really lay down there, and I would do this. And he's like, no, listen. He makes me lie down. He settles me down where? But in green pastures. The greenest of the green pastures. The beauty of the green pastures. I get a chance 
to rest where I need to rest. And I'll tell you personally, this is something that has meant a lot to me recently. I was sharing some things with a friend of mine, and actually some of you have met this guy, um, Dr. Dave. He came and did our D group equipping session. He's going to do the next one. And I was sharing some things with him. And I was lamenting some things. And I was like, man, I just can't stop myself long enough to do this, this, or this. And he goes, man, I'm going to give you some unsolicited advice. And I was like, all right, sweet. I trust you. I love you as a friend. What is it? And he said, I sense a wounding in you that is manifesting in your ability to rest and connect with God deeply. I sense a wounding in you that's manifesting in your ability to rest and settle and experience the green pasture where God has you right now. Man, it cut me deep. Because I had to ask the question, if I actually did settle down, what am I scared of? What am I fearful of? What's actually gonna come to mind if I allow myself to settle? Because when the lights go out at night and we close our eyes, and our minds start running and our heart starts churning, what is it that it's pointing you to? He then goes on, he says, he leads me beside quiet waters. He guides me beside quiet waters. He takes me to this place of quiet. Now there's this leading aspect here. Shepherd leads his sheep, all right? There's no runners, People can't, you can't, the sheep can't run. He pulls you back. You can't take your like strong tower of sufficiency with you in the process because then you can't follow the lead of the shepherd. So he's saying, hey, I'm gonna lead you beside quiet water. Because we're gonna know who we're following. He's, he's the good shepherd. His whistle or his song, his facial expression are gonna be common to us and understanding to us because so often pastors will stand up and say, sheep are dumb. Sadly, I actually think when pastors say that a lot of time as they're trying to gain an advantage. Sheep are dumb. No, actually, sheep have this incredible brain to them that they can hear just the faintest sound of a song and they'll know exactly it's their shepherd's song. It's their shepherd's whistle. They can even follow the facial expression of their shepherd. Incredible processing. So the shepherd says, I'm going to lead you. Listen, because then what it says is he leads me. The beautiful thing about it is he doesn't lead a part of you. He doesn't lead your physical part to the quiet waters. He doesn't leave your mental, your lead your mental part to the quiet waters. He doesn't lead your spiritual part to the quiet waters, but he leads all of you. Because that's all he knows. Because Jesus came in God's form to take on human flesh. He was fully human. He understands what it means to have a body, a mind, and a spirit. And he longs to lead all of that to where but to quiet waters, still waters, where there's a refreshing drink. Well, in the mountain country, in this area, it wasn't just normal to have quiet waters. And sheep scare easily. 
They get discombobulated easily. And so to find quiet waters, the sheep or the shepherd had to do the work to make the water quiet. He had to go before and do the painstaking work to dam up the creek that was rushing down the hillside to make a nice, quiet, refreshing, comfortable pool. Because sheep have been known to fall into rushing water. But man, they've also been known to drink anything that's wet. All right? Doesn't matter if it's polluted, doesn't matter if it's infested, or if it's fresh water, if it's wet, they're lapping it up. So the shepherd's going to lead them past the cesspool, right to the quiet waters that who has prepared it? But the good shepherd has. He did the work for it. He's providing it. And the cool thing about this is, if you think about the beauty of water, for those of you that are in the medical field, water doesn't just satisfy our thirsty tongue, but what else does it do? But it affects every single part of you. When we're dehydrated, we feel it in all places of our body. The refreshing water floods everything in us and benefits everything in us. He leads who besides still waters? But me, all of me. So we have to ask the question, what well are we drinking from? Are we following the good shepherd to the quiet water, the water that he's providing? Are we risking the drink in the rushing water? Because that's what culture tells us to do. Go faster, go faster, busier, more, more, go, go. Or do we actually follow the lead to where the quiet water is and get the refreshing drink that our whole soul longs for? Then it says, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. Literally translated, he brings my life back. He brings my life back. Picture a person on a table who codes. There's nothing. Everybody's scrambling to come in to get this person back. And they work, and they work, and they work, doing whatever the medical people do. I'd have passed out by this point. And they're doing whatever they need to do, and all of a sudden, (gasps) the air goes back into their soul. The breath comes back. The life comes back. The beeping that's supposed to be there returns. Here, he restores our soul. He literally wants to bring our life back. The beautiful picture in Genesis where just as God breathed life in the Adam, the language, the Hebrew language is so poetic and so beautiful where, G, where uh, God breathed life in the Adam and he came to life. He longs to breathe life into us. Because listen to what he said in John 10, but the good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. He wants to restore, bring back your life by laying down his life. This isn't just breath in your lungs life. This isn't just bottom rung 
life. This is life abundantly, life that is peace, life that is satisfaction, life that is what our heart longs for. So what are you clinging to for life? What are you clinging to? Or better yet, sometimes we don't cling to life, we actually cling to death. And we can't accept the life that he's looking to restore because we won't give up what's dead, what's gone, what hadn't worked before, what expectation let you down. And he keeps going, he guides me in the paths of righteousness. He guides me. You know, now we're finally at a place where he can start guiding us. He has settled us. He's provided for us. He's restored us. Now, here we go. We can finally start moving. How often do we want to put God first? How often do we want to move first? But do we want to say, God, tell me where you need me to go. And he's like, oh, now, let me settle you. Let me provide for you. Let me restore you. That's the work I want to do. We'll, we'll guide later. Let me do this first. But now we're finally at a point where we can be guided. We can finally move forward. We can finally go. So we're at a place where we can be settled and provided, restored. Here it is. You know, sheep have a tendency to, to blindly follow the one in front of them. They'll just move nose to tail. Man, if there's a sheep in front of them moving, they're gonna follow right behind them because they're just assuming they're following the good shepherd, so I'm gonna follow them, and somebody's following me. And so sheep at times, because of that trust that they have, will at times just veer off course because they're just looking down eating grass to the point that they just eat grass right off the cliff. And here the next sheep comes right behind them and the next sheep comes right behind them and they, they just follow them. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're following. But he guides me to the path of righteousness. How often do we do that? Just follow nose to tail. We follow culture nose to tail. We follow this leader nose to tail. We follow whatever it may be nose to tail and we never realize or, or use the litmus test of where are we going? Where is he guiding us? But the paths of righteousness. The paths of righteousness. Like I said, no towers allowed, no runners allowed. Here we go. The paths of the shepherd are deliberate and they're intentional towards righteousness. They're deliberate and intentional towards righteousness. Because so often we want to claim the promise of Romans 8, 28, where all things work together for good for those who love Christ and are calling according to his purpose. Yes, that's it. That's beautiful. That's God's job to make those things happen. Guess what we get invited into, which is actually Romans 8, 29, which says, those, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? But conformed to the image of his son. Why do we want to be conformed to the image of Christ? Because he is righteousness. He leads us and guides us in paths of righteousness, things that look like Christ. He shapes us. That's what we're looking for. The shepherd that guides us to righteousness is your movement setting you up to look more like Christ. Is your movement setting you up to look more like Christ? 
because it finishes this particular section with for his name's sake. For his name's sake. The good shepherd works for his good name. Because the good shepherd wants to be known as a good shepherd because then more landowners or, or livestock owners would entrust that shepherd in guiding the sheep. And so here the good shepherd says, hey, I love you so much. I'm going to settle you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to provide for you so much. Because you mean that much to me, but it's also my name is on the line. I'm willing to do all the work because my name is on the line. I'm willing to put my stamp on you. And why is Christ able to do that? Because he's worthy. He's the Holy One. So then it moves into the statement. Now we get to the hard part. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There was this... this um, I guess it was like a science experiment done back in the 80s and 90s, like 1980 and 90, um, where what they wanted to do was they wanted to like simulate uh, the effects of, of what it would look like in space, basically. The Arizona desert, because, man, it's just crazy out there. And so they, they simulated almost like a, a Truman Show dome, and they created these different biospheres in there, and they had perfect, the, the perfect temperature and perfect conditions for things to grow. And it, it failed once, and they went back to the drawing board and redid it. But one thing they noticed is in this biosphere uh, experiment that they were doing is that the trees would grow extremely fast. But before the trees could reproduce and get to a reproducing uh, level age so they could actually you know, continue to like, propagate their own, the trees would fall down. Well, the scientists began to wonder, why are the trees falling down? I mean, these, these conditions are perfect. What the scientists found was what they didn't take into account for the various biospheres that they created was the power of struggle, the power of wind. The wind would stress the tree to the point that it would strengthen its trunk, deepen its roots. And then the tree can survive in the wild, but it couldn't survive in the perfect conditions. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death. There's not an exclusion here. There's a definitive nature because the way that the paths would take the sheep, the shepherd would lead the sheep, they'd have to go down into these deep cut valleys. These ancient streams had, had just grinded into the, the countryside and made these valleys that are dark. At times scary, the Hebrew language actually indicates this like heaviness in this language. The sheep had to go through it because they had to get to the other hillside where the greener pasture was for a particular season or a sheepfold that was over there that could hold a certain size flock for protection. So here the shepherd 
guide the sheep in paths of righteousness. Where? Through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, when we sense fear as people, there's this autonomic response in our brains that shift right to fight, flight, and freeze. And I actually learned one this week, fawn. We want to fight it. We want to flee from it. We just simply freeze or we fawn and just try to become a chameleon. Just if I can just look like my surroundings long enough, I won't have to deal with this. And essentially what we're doing is not dealing with the fear that sparked. We're not using our whole self to actually step into this valley of the shadow of death. We run from it. Or we freeze in it. Or we fight it. Or we try to fawn within it. We push away discomfort like the plague. We push away the valley of the shadow of death like the plague. K.J. Ramsey, in her book, Lord is My Courage, she says, we Christians like to draw a straight line between the resurrection of Christ and the rejoicing at the end that we are supposed to feel. But what happens is the line ends up crossing out all the parts of Scripture that include having fears and crying tears. We miss the shaping part. We miss the strengthening part. We miss the roots growing deep part. You know, the only way to fully experience and test the settling and providing and restoration and guidance that Christ is offering, the Good Shepherd is offering, is in the dark valley. Why do we speed through it? Why do we refuse to grieve? Why do we hold on to our pains and not let them go? Why don't we like deeply grieve? Why do we push down our protest? Go and read Psalm, 150 Psalms, 150 songs, 150 poems. A lot of them, what, what are they doing? But they're protesting, not protesting to demand an answer, to demand to be right, but they're protesting God to hear from him truth that they need to hear in the valley. Because then it follows it up, I fear no evil. I fear no evil, and we're like, ah, I fear no evil. Well, if you go through and study scripture, actually the most repeated phrase in scripture is I fear no evil or some iteration of that. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. And for us, we're like, okay, we're just going to white-knuckle this. We're not going to fear it. I'm just going to close my eyes and walk through the valley of the shadow of death because I don't want to fight or flight or freeze or fawn. But the beautiful thing about this phrase is it shows up over and over and over and over again in Scripture, but it always is attached to this beautiful promise that affirms his presence do not fear i will be with you again the good shepherd is staking his name on this because the very next statement is you are with me and this is not just some like accidental stumbling upon i can look over and i can see the shepherd and he's with me no this is a deep 
deep understanding of who you are as a person. This is more than just a surface level understanding that the shepherd has of the sheep, but this means that he is fully present in all of us. You're with me. You know, Jesus can claim this because he's done it. Listen to what Hebrews says. It says in Hebrews 4, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And listen to what verse 15 says. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the, to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We can rest in that. We can rest in the fact that his presence is so near because he went through the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf. He laid down his life for us to come out of the valley on the third day, to defeat the ultimate result of the valley, which is death. It's nothing to him. And so because of that, now we can go before his throne confidently and receive grace and find mercy, what we're longing for. The cool thing here is David doesn't say, I walk into the valley. But what does he say? I walk through the valley. There's a promise on the other side. Why? Because he is with me. I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. They couldn't kill my Jesus. They couldn't kill my shepherd. I've got no worries. I'm good. I'm following him because what we begin to see actually in the second half of the psalm is the same thing that we saw in the first. This is a cyclical poem. There's couplets here. Part A is comp- with part B, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He settles me down in green pastures. He settles me. Well, the couplet to that is your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They settle me. Your rod, he lies me down in green pastures. He settles me. He, third person, it becomes very personal. Your. You, Jesus, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. (sighs) You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Provision. You have anointed my head with oil. (sighs) Restoration. You have filled my cup to overflowing. God, you've done it. You've shown me where this is. And so the beautiful thing, if we follow the tense of the language, we go from him over there, that person, the good shepherd, this person to I walk the valley of the shadow, fear no evil because you, Jesus, are with me. but we hold on to the John passage in this because he said something that's very, very important. If we look at John 10, 14, 
there's this beautiful truth that comes out in that as he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, but we have to pay attention to the order here because so often as people, we think that we have to earn our way to God or we have to become our own God. And I've got to make it there and I've got to do enough things and I've got to try hard enough and I've got to be successful enough. But the order is very important because what does Jesus say to his people though? He says, no, I will know my people. Who's taking the responsibility here but Jesus? And because of this, they will know me. They will know me. I will lay my life down for them. Because I know them. And because of that, they're going to know me. And so the cool thing that we get the rest in is, is what we see at the very end of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. That's what we want. And I will what but dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Guess what we're back to? We're back to the sheepfold. We're back to the kingdom forever. Not only are we in, not only are we accepted, but what Christ is screaming to us and whispering to us at the same time is, you are known. You're known. I know you. I know everything about you. I knew you before you were even one to be known. I know you, all your thoughts. I know all your actions. I know your feelings. I know what you've been through. I, knew where you've, I know where you've been hurt. I know your successes. And for some of us, we're like, oh, finally. And for some of us, we're ready to run. Because if anybody knows me, like what that pastor is explaining, then they're not gonna like it. Great quote from Tim Keller. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved in the midst of the knowledge of who I really am is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any, diff any difficulty life can throw at us. Good Shepherd knows us calls us by name. He restores us. He settles us. He provides. He guides. So we can rest in Him. Everything we have, we can rest in Him. You know, I'm not certain of your past experiences. I don't know kind of where you stand on some things. I know in this congregation there are people that have been hurt before from shepherds. 
and I'm sorry. I don't know where you stand in the sense of the, the feeling of being known. But man, if we can hold the litmus test of who Jesus is based on Scripture and keep that in the forefront. I don't know where you are in the valley of the shadow of death. Are you running? Are you fleeing? Are, are you fighting? Are you, I don't know. But the fact that we're known and fully loved is a truth that something only Christ can offer. No other religion offers that promise. And so we're going to move into a time. And now part of our communion process is reflection. And so we're going to just spend some time in reflection today. There's a song that Jacob's going to, going to sing for us. Uh, a, a, I guess fairly new artist, Chris Renzima, sings this song. And it's how to be yours. It's, it's asking the question to himself, how can I be yours? There's this conversation where Chris is speaking to Christ. And then you get a chance in the second part of the song to actually hear the response. We get to sit here and rest in it for a little bit in the truth that we are known. That we're fully known and fully loved. If you have something you want us to pray about, I'd love for you to fill out a connect card. There's one in the, in the seat pocket in front of you. You can spend some time doing that. But I want you to just rest. Rest in the truth that you're known. You're fully known and fully loved. Let's spend some time just, just resting. Just resting.